for me, that was actually the, the, the wildest ride of, of my career, even to date. Um, having experienced massive highs, massive lows, and everything in between, all in the span of a single day. Mike Mangini's is a classic entrepreneur story, making it, losing it, and making it back again in more ways than one. But what I want to know is, how? I'm Kristen Livingston with Bentley University, and this is How I Made It. As a young kid, I, I used to um, always read the Wall Street Journal, and, and uh, I was always into stocks. And uh, an uncle of mine um, used to always tell me about, uh, he used to trade Yahoo during the late 90s. Uh, it turns out it was Yahoo. Uh, he, was a, he, he didn't know the name of the company, but he, <laughs> he knew that the price was flying at the time, and he used to talk about it with me. And, and, uh, and so uh, I was hooked from a young age. Bentley and the trading room were a natural fit for Mike. After graduating in 2001, he went into finance. Started out uh, as a financial advisor with uh, American Express. Um, had, a, had a wonderful time doing that. Uh, wonderful by the course of nine months. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, had a, I had an insatiable itch that I just kind of needed to scratch. Uh, and it, it, it kind of brought together the two loves of my life, sports and, and markets. And, uh, and so... I left my job and I started a company. Uh, so the National Sports Exchange, in the conception of the idea, was to create a marketplace where you could trade equity in professional athletes. So you're talking fantasy sports, like if I love Tom Brady mm -hmm. and I want him to win or lose. I'm not, I'm not on either side. Careful. Okay. So, <laughs> so I would put... Um, what would I put into him? Is it fake money, quote unquote? So the the idea was was really centered around the concept of a, the value of a baseball card. Ultimately, a baseball card is just a piece of a cardboard, and it's got a picture on it, some stats in the back, and it has a certain number of them that are issued. And so ultimately, that as we know now, for those who collected baseball cards a long time ago, most of them are now worthless. But mm -hmm. at the time, there was supply and demand, and the the factors that weighted into that supply and demand gave that thing a value. And so for me, I, I wanted to digitize that in a way and, and create an exchange where you could trade um, fictitious equity in professional athletes mm -hmm. and equitize that with real money. Okay. Um, and so there was kind of an element of gambling, there was an element of markets, there was an element of fantasy sports. All in one marketplace, the National Sports Exchange. Users could trade in football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. I left my job, didn't know what the first thing of how to create a company, <laughs> uh, and so uh, my father and I would um, sit down at his kitchen table and kind of hash through a business plan. Uh, we raised about 150 grand from, from friends and family. Wow. Uh, and that money carried us through two years, actually. Me and four uh, guys um, uh, carried us through two years of development, you know, ultimately wound up being a success. But raising capital without ever having done so before proved tough for Mike and his partners. He moved home and met a friend of a Bentley friend, a guy whose magnetism he just couldn't get out of his head, Jed Leslie. The moment I met him, I, I knew instantaneously that this was a guy that I wanted to, to build uh, this company with. And, uh, and lo and behold, um, the adage of great people know great people. Uh, within a week, uh, we had two other folks that, uh, that Jed had known. And um, uh, so it was Jed, Tysto, and Kaya, myself, and, and all four of us. Uh, we're the founders of the National Sports Exchange. Yeah, and so you, it did well, and it, it eventually sold. <laughs> uh, so it's, 
it's kind of the classic story of, of, of a startup where, you know, you start uh, this thing and there's an enormous amount of energy and, and you can't fail and you're building this thing and every single day is a new high and a new low. Uh, all wrapped into one. We lived together, we worked together, we, we, we partied together, we did everything 24-7. This group of people was together. And um, for me, that was actually the, the, the wildest ride of, of my career, even to date, um, having experienced massive highs, massive lows, and everything in between, all in the span of a single day. Um, and That's stressful. <laughs> uh, st <laughs> starting a company is, is, is not uh, for the faint of heart. Classic clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. Almost. It turns out they were making what the market wanted. Again, almost. So they went through three iterations of NSE, hosting their platform on a little local machine and building tech very quickly, well above their pay grade in a vacuum. And ultimately, what we learned from that is you have to listen to your customer. Mm -hmm. And what was the customer saying? The customer said to us that uh, we built something that was really awesome but for a very small audience. Ugh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we learned the hard way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that even though this thing was very cool uh, and a lot of people thought it was very cool, uh, the people that thought it was very cool were not large enough to, uh, to command uh, you know, massive amounts of, uh, of, of uh, capital inflows and capital outflows. Sports agent Jeff Moore had heard about the National Sports Exchange and got in touch with Mike. He had the connections they needed to get NSE into the industry, and together they sold the company to Pro Trade Sports, which was then acquired by Yahoo, or Yoohoo, as Mike's uncle would say. Mike says the idea of selling shares of professional athletes has been tried a few times, but it's difficult to execute for legal reasons. Blockchain, the pioneer of cryptocurrency, may unlock some of those capabilities. But after NSE, Mike wanted to get the band back together again. He couldn't get a certain risky investor out of his head. George Soros. George Soros was really famous for um, this one massive trade that he made. Uh, the British pound uh, had a massive dislocation. He predicted it. He made tons of money. And he wrote a lot about this. George Soros is known as the man who broke the Bank of England for selling short $10 billion worth of British pounds sterling during the Black Wednesday UK currency crisis of 1992. It's estimated that the gamble made him a billion dollars in one day. So how do you sell short on the currency market? Say, I want to trade Indian rupees for US dollars, and one dollar is worth 50 rupees. I borrow 50 rupees today to buy one dollar. But tomorrow, one dollar is worth 100 rupees. I sell my dollar for 100 rupees, return the 50 I borrowed, and keep the rest, minus all those fun administrative fees times that by 10 billion, trade rupees for pounds, go back to 1992 with the forethought of George Soros and you too could break the Bank of England. What ultimately came of this was um, I just started reading crazy amounts of, of uh, spending a lot of time reading about the currency markets. And, uh, and so I had this wild idea to um, get the band back together and, and I worked with some of the, the co-founders from National Sports Exchange to help to build uh, an automated trading platform that enabled me to um, get in and out of the currency markets uh, thousands of times a day. Oh. Uh, so, you know, picking up nickels in front of a steamroller, ultimately we learned the hard way that we got steamrolled, uh -huh. uh, which we'll get to uh, in a moment. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but we, we identified a really interesting opportunity to, um, to take advantage of slight arbitrage and do so at a very rapid pace and 
these algorithms that we built were were beautiful and they worked extraordinarily well uh, until they didn't. Yeah, it's giving me office space flashback. We're just going to take a teeny tenth of a penny off the top. That's right. No one will notice. No one will notice. Why do we have $5 million right. in our ATM account? Yeah. So you took your eye off of it for a split second? You know, um, that would be one way to look at it. Uh, in fact, what, uh, what I learned was risk management is uh, even more important. It's as or even more important than, than the trading algorithm of, of buying and selling itself. Um, and so for all of the, the, the Bentley future traders uh, out there, I, w- I would highly recommend you pay very close attention to risk management as you're building out your models. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, uh, uh, being a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a trading cowboy of sorts, um, risk, risk management was not something I paid much attention to uh, because I always saw that our models uh, always got back. Mm-hmm. And so even when we were losing a lot, we would always make it back. Um, and so, uh, we were trading this and we were trading this live, uh, we were doing extraordinarily well, um, hundreds of percents of, uh, return on our invested capital. Um, and so there was a moment where I, you know, I thought I was 27 years old. I thought I was going to be retired by 30 and, and buy an Island and it was going to be great. Yeah, we would be there now. Yeah, exactly. This, this, this podcast would be on, on my Island, uh, perhaps, Island. perhaps next time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, uh. And so what, what, what ultimately wound up happening was there was a major dislocation in the markets, as everyone is now aware. The mortgage crisis hit, and prices went haywire. When Lehman failed, uh, and then all these other things started to matriculate in the market, over a very short period of time, uh, the U.S. dollar dislocated massively from every other currency. Yep. And so uh, for us, our algos were trading super, super fast during this period of time. Uh, and ultimately, that that almost killed us. Not 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 literally, but in our in our bank account sense. Yeah, nothing that you could have predicted at all, unless you had watched the Big Short, fifteen years later. In, yeah. in, in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, in hindsight, ten years <laughs> later. Yeah, and so from there, though, now you have built this career of recruitment and sort of building up startups and doing it from the other side. Yeah, yeah. So um, after after this epic fail it was i was about two weeks away from getting married and um (laughs) (laughs) and so um you know so i uh uh, robin um uh i love you uh (laughs) she uh she always had my back and Mm -hmm. um this was sort of one of those moments in time where like you take a deep breath you're gonna dust yourself up off you're gonna get back up you're gonna do something else it's gonna happen you just know it and so so, you know, go off, get married, do this thing, come back. And very shortly thereafter, I, I had an opportunity to meet a gentleman by the name of Chris Farmer. Um, Chris is the founder of Signal Fire, is, is the firm that I, I currently work at. Um, and Chris and I met in a, a, a diner in South Boston. And over eggs, uh, we talked about this model that he, that he was trying to build for venture capital, where um, the idea would be, um, building a, a platform of sorts, a data platform which enabled you to make all sorts of really smart decisions without having to use human inputs, uh, a, a service model where once you invest your money into entrepreneurs, you were able to help and support them in ways that were not consistent uh, with what a lot of other venture firms would say they would do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that we said that we were going to do, we were actually going to do. This was for recruitment, this was for business development, this is for data science and algorithm development and all sorts of different things. And, and my mind just exploded when, when, when I met this guy. 
Uh, and so um, after, after that breakfast, uh, I walked from South Boston back to Cambridge. Um, long walk. For, yes. For, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I took a long walk and I just thought and thought and thought and, and was like, wow, that, that, like, I don't even know what just happened to me, but I just met someone who struck me as this, this brilliant individual who, who will stop at nothing to see this thing to fruition. Mm -hmm. And it was instantaneous and I saw it in him and, um, you know, 10 years later, here we are. Mike is currently the head of talent for SignalFire, an investor that provides seed money, supports acceleration and scale for startups, and, in Mike's case, scouts out people like Chris Farmer. Brilliant, magnetic individuals with a vision, Mike then recruits key executives and teams to support these CEOs and company heads. And it isn't always easy. They can run from an Elon Musk, Mike's current favorite entrepreneur, to a Lord Voldemort. When I asked Mike about an ideal CEO one others should emulate, he told me about Mark Laurie, who started Jet.com, an e-commerce company. I got to know Mark early on in the development of Jet uh, when it was basically just a sketch on a napkin. And um, I think most people know the, the story of that company. They went on to sell to Walmart after a couple of years for an enormous sum of money. Uh, and, and now that team essentially runs you know, Walmart's e-commerce business. Um, Mark's one of those guys that has all of the things, extraordinary vision, um, palpable magnetism, uh, amazing uh, clarity of thought, uh, the ability to distill complex ideas down into something very simple and, and bite-sized, the, the ability to uh, convince people to take major pay cuts to come and work for that mission. And say you have all of those ingredients, what happens though, do you see companies with those ingredients fail still? Yeah. You know, Pets.com, for example, right? Um, I mean, those the, the, those ideas today are worth billions of dollars, uh, but the market wasn't ready for it back in 1999. The, the, the infrastructure wasn't there. Um, you know, a recent example of this would be Chewy, where they sell pet food and deliver it to your home. Well, that's a $9 billion company right now. People were doing this back in 1999. The problem was the infrastructure wasn't there. The supply chain, the logistics, all of that stuff has now taken a 20-year maturation cycle, and you can optimize things with data. You can figure out where to put your warehouses. And like it, the, the model has shifted. The market has shifted, and so it enables those things to become uh, successful businesses. So sometimes it's not about the ideas, not about the team. It's about right place, right time. And so there, there is an element of luck. It's luck and sort of what's trending. And what have you seen trend? So there's a lot of things that are trending right now. I would say that, that um, one of the industries that is probably the most ripe for major disruption is, um, is fintech. The financial technology space is ripe for major disruption because uh, big banks uh, kind of lost their way. You know, if you think about a lot of the, the dynamics that are at play when it comes to the financial industry, you're looking at massive amounts of power that are consolidated into a very small uh, cohort of, of, of people. And the technology industry doesn't like that. Uh, the technology industry sees an opportunity. They see that with mobile phones, with, with digital payments, with digital currency, with algorithms that can help to prescribe a very specific method for you to get yourself out of debt or for you to budget for a certain thing. Um, these are the kinds of things that are coming online now. You know, it takes a bank years to develop a single mobile product. It takes a startup a week. 
Mm-hmm. And so the ability to move very fast, to leverage cutting edge technologies, to um, to understand an, ev- an, e- an emerging market. So the millennial market, for example, is very different from the Gen X market, is very different from, you know, the boomer market. There's, there's every market tends to, or every I should say every generation is, is different in the mindset that they approach the spending with and saving. I think that the financial industry right now is, um, is, is in a tough position because everybody's kind of got their eyes on them. After hearing about all the ups and downs of his startups, I asked Mike, would you ever want to start something from scratch again? I feel like I have this amazing job right now that allows me to be both an entrepreneur and sort of a, a person that collects a, a regular paycheck. Uh, and I have the best of both worlds. Um, at some point in the future, I do feel like the the itch will need to be scratched again. And I don't know if that is, is, is something as simple as like starting a coffee shop and just like serving a really good cup of coffee to somebody and having that uh, experience be the thing that, 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 that I connect to. Uh, or if I start a, a ne- another technology company, I, I don't know. Um, but the, the, th- the things that I learned the first time around uh, that I would highly encourage uh, our, our, our Bentley community to, to pay very close attention to is, is knowing who you are and knowing what you're not. Uh, I think those are really important things to, to recognize um, because for me, what I learned that I wasn't was I'm not a technologist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not somebody that's going to build a product from zero to one. And that was a lesson that was very difficult to learn earlier in my career. Um, and so you know, figuring out what it is that makes you special and really doubling down on that uh, is some of the best advice I could probably give anybody. How I Made It is produced by me, Kristen Livingston, for Bentley University. Special thanks to Isabel Bader, Caroline Cruz, Jenna Floster, Molly McKinnon, Terry Cronin, and Pauline Carpenter, without whom this podcast just wouldn't exist. To hear more episodes, go to bentley.edu slash howimadeit. And to share your story of making it, send us a note at howimadeit at bentley.edu. We'll see you next time. Oh, one last thing I forgot to mention. Mike once worked for one of the most famous CEOs of our time, Mark Zuckerberg. Did you need a secret handshake to get in <laughs> to every meeting? No, you did need a badge that got you in the, the door, though. <laughs> you need to change your profile picture every time. That's right. Update your status. <laughs>